hospice is a very team-centered approach to dying um, because dying is a spiritual, emotional, and physical event. And uh, so that's why we have social workers, chaplains, home health aides, nurses, you know, doctors, volunteers on the team. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bruh, just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this game, now my fan they can't eat. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in on today's Cup of Nurses episode with your hosts here, Peter and Matt. Thank you, everyone, for taking time and listening. If you find value in this podcast, we improved your life in any way. We want to do that on a larger scale and impact everyone. So please share it with your loved ones. Give it a subscribe. Give it a follow. This is how we get more exposure, ranks us higher in the algorithms, and ultimately it motivates us to keep on producing this high-quality show. If you like our merch that we have wearing right now, I think it looks smooth. These are the new designs for March. That's a dope tee. It's a good fit. It is. It is. I love the tri-blend that we have. And guess what? Every single beginning of the month, starting March, we're going to have new designs coming out. So get your tea while it lasts. And if you want to check out our Frontline Warriors movement, it is based on consciousness, expanding your self-awareness, and cultivating yourself to live a better life as a human being and being embodied, suited for those blog posts coming out every single week. And Pronto, 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 the app that we've been working on so much behind the scenes it is coming out very, very shortly. If you want to subscribe and get the latest updates, you can check out prontohealth.com. And yeah, let the show begin. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing great. Another stellar introduction, Matthew. Appreciate it. But on today's show, we're going to have a guest, Beth Cavanaugh. With over 25 years of experience in internal medicine, short-stay surgery, and hospice care, she understands firsthand that compassion and healthcare can sometimes be elusive. Her new book, The Power and Pain of Nursing, aims to arm both new and seasoned nurses with the tools necessary to care for themselves in the face of one of the most demanding professions in the world. Come check us out as we talk about the end-of-life process, hospice care and hospice nursing, compassion in nursing, and the emotions involved in grieving and the dying process. Thanks so much, Beth, for being here. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? What did you do? What kind of nursing did you do? And kind of where you are in life right now? Sure. Um... Thanks for having me. And I've been a nurse for 25 years. Um, my first job was in a nursing home and I lasted just three weeks because I was the, the night shift charge nurse and in charge of 22 to 33 patients. And I would just come out of nursing school. Um, and it was also graveyard shift and I start to mentally deteriorate around 7.30 PM. So I left, I've worked at an AIDS hospice for a couple of years. Um, I worked in internal medicine for a couple of years. I worked in short stay surgery for a couple of years, realizing you can actually make a significant impact in somebody's life in just 30 minutes. Um, I really loved that. And I also had little kids then. So it was a great job in terms of um, timeframe. I didn't have to work holidays. We didn't, we weren't open on Sundays. Um, and it was just like a great vibe. The whole place was really fun. Um, and then after a while, I just felt like I wanted a little more um, just to look and see if there was anything else out there for me. 
And that's when I landed at this really sweet hospice home in Portland, Oregon. And I just completely fell in love with the place. I, the nurses were really amazing educators. Um, it was a great culture of compassion, um, really good, meaningful work, taking care of people who are dying. And they had free scones, which was kind of a bonus. Um, since then, I've been in hospice um, in various parts of it. I, I worked in that inpatient home for about seven years. I worked in home hospice. Um, I worked in the background of hospice intake and team lead. I worked in hospitals doing conferences um, with families and patients who wanted to know more about hospice. Um, and the you know, home hospice, I think, was the most difficult job um, because you're just like, a lot of times it's driving around at night without any cell service and, you know, eating at Sherry's at four in the morning um, and trying to find all of your tools in your trunk. So that was actually the hardest job for me. Um, but right now I'm at an inpatient hospice unit, which I love. And I feel like that's where my heart is for sure. With men, I being a ICU nurses from our nursing background, I've never really had a lot of experience with, with hospice patients. Uh, we do have some people that pass away in the, in the ICU, but nothing um, you could say as as ho like homeful as actual hospice care, because a lot of our patients don't, unfortunately don't go into hospice care. They pass away um, just abruptly, you could say. So what's kind of like the day-to-day -day of a hospice nurse? Well, for me, um, in our inpatient hospice unit, um, usually take four to mm, seven patients, um, depending on what shift you work. And uh, you kind of go from room to room and circle around, make sure everybody has what they need, give their medications, make sure their symptoms are managed. If they're having like a pain crisis or something like that, you work really closely with the doctor to get their pain under control. If they're having, um, you know, if you realize that they're having some spiritual issues, maybe talking about um, their fear of dying, I will connect with the chaplain and make sure the chaplain knows and make sure my teammates know. Um, and if there's some family dynamic issue, or maybe, maybe the patient wants to leave our inpatient unit and live somewhere else, I'll connect with the social worker that we have on site there to kind of help facilitate that process. Um, a lot of it is just really establishing um, a relationship with the patient, establishing trust with them, um, you know, being able to be with them during these moments of vulnerability. A lot of them are afraid. Um, educating the family about death and dying and what it looks like. That's a big part of what we do is education. Um, most people have kind of the same questions about dying. What does it look like? How long will it take? Um, when should I feed my mom? Should I not feed my mom? Um, so that's a lot of what I do. And it's just kind of circling back and forth between my patients on my shift. I, home hospices different in that you go into patients' homes, wherever they are. You can go into a nursing home, or if they live in a bus down by the river, you go there. I've been on uh, a little sailboat before taking care of a patient um, in their homes, big homes, little homes, everything. So um, they go to their homes and they have all their supplies in the trunk, the nurse does. And um, 
you know, they'll spend some time with the patient um, kind of navigating their medications, making sure they sure they have what they need medication wise, make sure their symptoms are being managed. Um, you know, we listen to the heart, the lungs, the whole, you know, physical assessment, make sure they have everything they need and then collaborate with the team as well. Hospice is a very team centered approach to dying. Um, because dying is a spiritual, emotional, and physical event. And uh, so that's why we have social workers, chaplains, home health aides, nurses, you know, doctors, volunteers on the team. That was a long answer. <laughs> yeah, hospice, you seem to be working from a very empowered place and learning about that's a great perspective. Peter and I, I feel like we see like the sadder part where in the ICU, there's really nothing else we can do. And sometimes... We see patients and the family in the process of grieving and not accepting. And I feel like we don't see the other side because there's other agencies that take over that part. And the, the thing I know about a hospice is more about discharging and readmitting the patient. But we don't see the other aspect that you're bringing up. So I feel like that's very important for everyone to know. So how do you empower nurses in the hospice area to continue that compassion? Because I feel like fatigue is such a big part of the... Um, the pandemic and everything happening right now? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I, I think that acknowledging that the system is a bit sucky is kind of important because, um, you know, all nurses work in conditions that are um, pretty challenging. It's, um, there's a National Academy of Medicine. They have this amazing website for clinicians and they discuss the systemic difficulties of the clinician job that lead to burnout. And they list the job demands like inadequate staffing, constant interruptions, administrative duties, policies, processes, moral distress, um, inadequate technology, uh, so I think just acknowledging that the system is really a difficult system to work in um, can be empowering because really that's the most important thing that needs to be changed. Um, I think if people are feeling morally distressed, it's also important to know that it's not you. Um, there's this woman from the UVA uh, nursing school, her name's Ashley Hurst. And uh, she had this quote that said, you are not broken. You are not what needs to be fixed. And she's talking to the clinicians, all healthcare providers. Um, but for nurses, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's not going to be simple self-care practices that fix um, this and bring you empowerment. Um, I think that um, this statement that we're not broken kind of makes me relax a little bit and realize, oh, like, huh, it's not me. Like, maybe I can try to fix this. And it might feel kind of overwhelming, but I don't know. It's kind of a relief to know that it's not just you. You're not the problem. Um, so I think that. Um, Remembering that like self-compassion is really important kind of along the same lines. Um, self-compassion is uh, recognizing the humanity in your suffering. So recognizing that there is a global suffering that's going on here 
amongst all nurses probably. And um, recognizing that you, um, that it's okay. So not being harsh with yourself. Um, the, once I, I realized this very late in my career, but um, when I was writing my book, The Power and Pain of Nursing, uh, there my, the gentleman I was working with, Dominic Vachon, said that um, compassionate care leads to better patient outcomes. And I was like, it felt a little mind blowing. Whereas like um, negative care can lead to negative outcomes. And it just kind of shocked me how much the way I show up for my job is so important. And the way that I care for my patients is so important. And believe me, like I, I wrote this book because I am in constant practice of trying to figure out how to be compassionate to my patients and myself and my family. Um, and I'm definitely not perfect and uh, not even close. <laughs> um, but I think that realizing that caring, compassionate care leads to better outcomes might make it easier to advocate for nurses because when we're advocating for nurses and empowered, then we're actually we're actually really advocating for our patients too, which is kind of a no brainer, right? So it was easier for me to advocate for better staff ratios or increased staff on the weekends when there's no administrative help or better, more you know, mainstreamed processes. Um, I also think it's really important to have good leaders. Um, of course, I think it's really hard to be angry at your manager. It's hard to be pissed off and compassionate at the same time, you know? And I think nurses have a lot of validity to being angry right now because I think a lot of people feel kind of let down by the system. So um, finding good leaders, if you're not working right now, find a place that has a really good supportive manager. Um, remembering that change does not happen overnight, especially in a big system. And I think the more nurses you have um, kind of advocating for change, the better. Um, yeah, just numbers. I think, you know, people will listen to a few more numbers and it doesn't mean you have to be like, an angry, bitchy crew of nurses who want change. I think it can be a really respectful, kind, you know, process where you're simply advocating for nurses and also in the end, your patients. Right. That's the hardest thing for nurses is to advocate for ourselves because we see so much struggles and how the patient's life overall is affected by, by poor health or by serious injuries or or anything like that that it's like you're okay to live with certain issues because you know that somebody else has it worse than you but you can't always think like that. that's how you, you can't incorporate change if you're always okay with with what's going on if you're okay with the water temperature never going to warm the water up and it's like right, that, right, right. Mm, it's that big sympathy it's almost like a double-edged sword where it's like we have so much sympathy and you know so much love for others that we forget to love ourselves and the best way like you said, the best way to help patient outcomes is to be happy to go to work, to your workplace. Be happy where you spend the majority of your, of your hours. And it's really tough for nurses to figure out. And especially as travelers, we've seen so many units in different cultures that you can tell which nurse is going to have a, which patient is going to have a great positive outcome with a nurse that they're paired with. And that's mm -hmm. why things happen where sometimes a family calls and says, hey, I prefer if it's not that nurse. And 
if you're a software human, you can figure out those things in people's behavior. So yeah, you make a good point how you can't have, you can't be pissed off and have compassion at the same time. So we have to treat ourselves well to have that compassion, but also the system, just like you mentioned, we need to advocate on a smart level for ourselves to change things from the unit to the hospital to eventually to the collective. So Beth, one, one issue that I've seen a lot of nurses have is especially when they go through, like you could say a drought of having a lot of patients passed on them or having a bonded with a patient. Sometimes in an ICU, we have patients that stay over there two weeks, three weeks, months, and you see them slowly, you could say, uh, uh, degress and decline in, in life. But you're, they're still holding conversation. They're still talking to them. And a lot of times, uh, those nurses are unable to flip the work switch off and they bring that stuff stuff home with them. All the negativity, all that sadness that they experience in, in a hospital and making these connections and having people pass away, that it, it takes it takes a toll in their personal life. So how can nurses kind of avoid that, having that kind of an issue? <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm definitely not a mental health professional. So I, I know I don't have um, the probably, I don't have the right answers probably, but um, for me, you know, dealing with um, so much suffering in hospice that I do, um, I've done a lot of work to maintain some equanimity. And um, I took this uh, class one time on compassionate care of the dying. And uh, there was a Buddhist uh, priest there who talked about having a soft front and a strong back. And it really resonated with me that like you can have the soft front is basically your empathy. You are resonating with your patient's emotions, the sadness, the suffering. You are resonating with the family and their distress. And that is a really beautiful connection. And that is actually the stuff that will feed your soul as a nurse. However, at the same time, you have to have this strong back, which is um, this knowing, this knowing deep in your bones that patients suffer, people suffer, people die, people die all the time. Sometimes infections come back, cancers recur. Um, you know, it's just knowing that this is part of our shared humanity is this, these really difficult things to, um, be close to. So, so one of the, um, so having a soft front and strong back, you know, and I say it like, it's no big deal. Like you can just show up and go, okay, today I'm going to have a soft front, strong back, but it really actually requires practices. And, um, and, you know, again, I'm always working on this, always, you know, forgetting, trying again, forgetting, trying again, but having practices like um, meditation are actually really helpful to establish some equanimity so that you have more composure when, you know, there are big earth shaking events going off and you personally are emotionally devastated by it. I mean, I love it. Honestly, when I feel deep sadness, or if I cry in the kitchen, like I have before at my work, it's, it just makes me feel human. Like I never want to lose that. However, it's just really, it's, it's a lot of work to um, kind of um, do these practices. I mean, you have to do, I mean, I think one of the questions that you, uh, you had in your thing was what are the main things to bolster compassion or boost compassion? And it's my, in my humble opinion, it's meditation 
or mindfulness practices. It's um, an embodiment practice. So anything that kind of helps with your um, kind of physical processing of all the stuff you take in. So maybe it's yoga, maybe it's a body scan, maybe it's just lying down and kind of feeling your body, try to relax. Um, and uh, the other one is self-compassion, of course, because it's really hard to um, take in all this stuff and we want to be perfect and we want to go home and be perfect to our families and that is just not going to happen. So um, there is a, um, a researcher, Kristen Neff, who does a lot of work on self-compassion and, um, and she has a ton of education, meditation videos um, that people can access to kind of help restore and strengthen that self-compassion. Sorry, did I go off on a tangent? <laughs> it's okay. It's good. It's good. Yeah, that's very important. Everything that you said was was super important for us to learn, and people have to have to realize that the first thing to to good patient care is also having really good good self care because it works both ways. Uh, like with think about it, like with other religions, they always say that you know we all come from one, so we all come from one, so we are all one. That's kind of like the same thing as it is. If your patient's suffering, you're going to suffer a little bit as well. And if you're having a really good day, your patient's also going to have a pretty good day. And it's kind of how it works in synergy and all works all works together. Yeah, I love that. I, um, there's this one story. Uh, I'm really bad with remembering names, but I think it's the author of Compassion. This game makes two of us. Uh, okay, good. Um, it's the author. Of, I think it, the story is about the author of Compassionomics, which is Stephen Terzak. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, but he was um, on a ventilator in the ICU. And um, he, you know, he was not doing well, not doing well. And being, he was aware, but he was unable to communicate to people. And the thing, the, the number one thing that inspired him while he was lying on the bed was the nurse that came in. And the nurse can either could either make him feel like I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, or actually like lose his will to live and go, oh, forget it. Like I can't do this, which I found really kind of earth shattering that we can have such a huge impact on people. And it shouldn't be earth shattering, but it is, you know, these, these shifts that we have um, can be remarkably powerful to yourself and also to your patients. You make you make a very good point because if I come into into the room with a negative mindset or something has bothered me from home and my patient is anxious, so I have the same emotional charge like he does, and I'm like, just just chill out, everything's okay. You're you're not just take a deep breath, you're fine. But if you don't have empathy and you come off like that emotionally, you're not gonna help that patient anymore and it's gonna lead to worse problems and, and things like that. Yeah. True. So true. One of my issues always when I was a, a young nurse was always, I always had a, like a, you could say a disconnect between my emotions with, I would say death and dying and people passing on because for a long time I associated with the dying process and death and end of life care as like fear. I was mm -hmm. always scared of it. Like not mm -hmm. being able to, cause as humans, we always want to be, be, we always want to be in a world where we could predict as much things as we can. We like to be comfortable. <laughs> and it's like, death is that most uncomfortable thing because you can't, you can't predict it and you can't do anything about it in, in most cases. 
But then I read a lot of uh, like Buddhist teachings, a lot of uh, Eastern philosophies, and they always associated with like um, a second life. Uh, I was I was raised Catholic, which I understand the concept of like heaven and, and hell and that kind of stuff. But for some reason, I was associated death with with fear. And yeah, then I like I said, hell. it's the whole mm-hmm. hell thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's face like your judgment. Yeah. yeah face your judgment. Like you know, if I look back, it's like man, I don't know. But then like the Eastern philosophy was more of like it's just. You, this is uh, you're on this earth to experience the earth and things around you and the way, the way it works the way it moves and then once you pass away nothing to fear because you don't know what's there so you're just moving on to something else and that like blew my mind uh completely and then i had a patient that i took care of for maybe like i want to say um seven sh- shifts in a, in a row so like three one day three next and he ended up passing away and we had a conversation um about life and i asked him a few questions and um, he just, he seemed like he had no fear in him. Like he was ready to, for, to embrace everything that's coming. And he wouldn't really talk much about himself. He would just keep giving advice. It was his like, it was his like, his like last shine on earth. And he ended up passing away, but I had a really cool connection with the guy. And it's like, ever since then, I associated death and dying as not so much as, as a fear of the unknown, but just um, content with what's going to happen because you don't know and just moving on to something else. That is so amazing. I am curious how like how far into the profession were you before you discovered this? Oh, this was pretty early on. I want to say probably like two years in because after nursing school, I went into like a re- real big meditation and exploring different philosophies because I like I said, grew up Catholic. So by like age of 20, like 18 ish to like 24, I want to say I was exploring new things and looking at different teachings besides the stuff that I was taught just growing up because I wanted to get outside perspective. And that's just when I just started getting into it. So like meditation, kind of reflecting and being content with the things that I've done and things are going to happen to the future. Mm-hmm. Ever since then, I just kind of chilled out about the whole death situation. I, that's so, I mean, that's so huge, especially when you work in healthcare, right? Because healthcare all around us, I mean, there, there are visible signs of our own mortality. And I mean, I remember, you know, the first death I experienced where the patient was exactly the same age as me, 25. And it was, it was like earth shattering. And, um, and I think it's really important to process your own death and kind of what that might look like. And I, as a healthcare professional, and I think it's also really important to kind of process your philosophy of care or your spirituality of care. This is what, um, Dominic Vachon actually writes in his book, How Doctors Care. He he has a beautiful chapter on spirituality of care and philosophy of care and how, you know, healthcare providers are constantly facing these questions like, what is this all for, right? I mean, you know, you, you have some of you guys in the ICU. I mean, you probably had countless patients on ventilators where you're like, oh my God. And that it can happen like randomly, right? one random day. Um, so it's really important to reflect on, um, your, your spirituality or your religion, whatever it is to you that gives you meaning where you can kind of integrate your, um, your work life and your spiritual life. Um, it makes it, uh, your job more fulfilling that way. And, um, and I love that you kind of, Peter kind of came to terms with, your experience of what it will be like to die for you and how you could come to a place where you found peace so that you could actually help your patients, you know, through this process. 
Right. Yeah. And nurses got nurses have to understand that, like it's it's really hard to take that baggage, or it's really easy to take that baggage home with you. But it's just in some cases, no matter how much you try, no matter how good of nursing care you do, sometimes people just have to leave this this earth, and it's no one's fault. It's no one to be blamed, and it just it's it is because it's been made to to be that way. You know, we don't live forever. <laughs> we don't. Yeah. Nobody does except for Elvis. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Especially in Vegas. <laughs> and it is so rewarding being on that spectrum of like life and death where people always share some beautiful stories. Honestly, the best stories I've had with patients or talks, just like you mentioned, is when you're when they're on the cusp. It's, it's almost like they know and they have they're completely vulnerable. Just like you said, they're very soft in their front. They share everything or um, the best sunset they've seen. Like they go so in depth into things. Yeah. yeah. Is there like a, a good approach to speaking to somebody that's going through uh, like end of life? Because for me, what I've noticed is they're, to me, they're, they just, they don't only talk about themselves, but they reflect a lot about their past and try to offer you guidance. Maybe it's just because of the questions I asked, but that's what I noticed that with majority of people that I get to spend some time with and they're, they're content with, 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 with what's ahead of them, they always give you advice, but that advice always has a story uh, behind it. <laughs> I love that you were giving advice. So, um, uh, so you're wondering kind of how how to help patients along in this process, or more how to help yourself, like while this. Um, is well, let's do both. Let's first focus on a patient. So, maybe how can you help them best? Okay. Um, well, I love what you did, which you didn't even know what you were doing, but you were encouraging life review. You know, you were asking them questions, which is a really beautiful part of the dying process and a really important part to be able to kind of look back on your life and go, oh, like that sunset in Hawaii was so amazing. Or, you know, I raised my daughter and she's, you know, a teacher now and whatever it is, you know, anything that gives them meaning, but life review is actually really important. So if you can kind of ask questions about that. Also, I think it's really important just to ask them what is really important to you? A lot of times with my patients, I'll, I mean, even when they're close, you know, maybe a week away, I'll say, you know, what's, what's really important today? Do you want me to call one of your family? Do you want your friends over? Do you want a milkshake? You know, I think it's um, important to recognize that this is, you know, they're on a timeline here. You don't necessarily have to say it, but they're on a timeline. So let's try to make the best of it. And, um, so for what else for the patients, I think honesty and transparency is really important compassionately. You know, I, um, it doesn't work for everybody, but I like to be really transparent with people. Um, I had a patient once who, um, she came from the ICU, she was on a ventilator and they weaned her from the ventilator and sent her to our hospice home. And she, um, we all thought she was dying. The family came in, the daughter was sitting in the corner knitting after like three days of her being unresponsive and dying. And suddenly she just like, her eyes kind of fluttered open and she looked around and she said, where am I? And I told her where she was and she said, am I dying? And I said, yeah, you know, you are dying. Um, you've been very sick. You were in the ICU for two weeks on a ventilator and you know, thing, you know, the doctors say things aren't looking good. And she was so mad. She, she was like, what? 
I'm at the hospice house. And she was really mad at her granddaughter. And she just, you could see her just like summon all her strength and energy. And she was, she was not going to die. And by golly, I mean, she got out of that hospice home at like a week later. She went home. I don't even know if she signed up for hospice or if she was like, see you guys, I'm out of here. Um, but so I think transparency and honesty is really important, especially if they're asking, you know, frank questions. I think um, managing their symptoms is really a very important part of the process. Um, for me, I like to make sure um, family and friends can be either called so they can talk to them on the phone or so that they can come and be with them when they die, if that's what the patient wants and if that's what the family wants. Um, and just give them whatever they need and love them up as much as you can. Okay. I'm just so mild about, about that story. So this lady was on a ventilator for two weeks and she came into hospice and then she walked out of the hospice later. Well, she didn't walk out. She wheeled out. <laughs> wow. It's still, that's, yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Damn. I've, that's crazy. I've never heard like a first account of that happening ever. Oh yeah. It, de it definitely happens. I mean, I had, uh, another, yeah. I mean, I can think of many stories where that patients were literally came to us dying and kind of summoned enough energy to exit the hospice home and kind of go on and live, you know, either in their homes and maybe have more time uh, with their families in their home. So yeah, there's some really beautiful stories. We call them graduates of hospice, the ones who don't come to hospice anymore. <laughs> That's so interesting. Graduates of hospice. Wow. Yeah. I hope I'm that person in the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take it back for a second to the to the self-care because that's very big where we just want to tell our listeners how can they cultivate self-care how do you personally partake in that um, for yourself as a meditation journaling mm -hmm. there I mean there's a lot of things I um, it, it's it is important to have like little routines that you kind of have to automatically kind of unwind so on my way to work, I'll do like a little five minute video or um, meditation practice. I'll like listen to something, um, kind of be intentional about how I'm going to show up. Like I'm here for my patients, be really like clear about that. Um, while I'm at work, I try to lean into like the compassionate moments, those really like juicy moments with patients and their families. You guys know what I'm talking about when it's just like, Oh, you feel like you've made a connection. You feel like you've really changed something for them. Maybe it's their pain, their shortness of breath, whatever it is. Um, kind of lean into those positive moments as a nurse, because that really does. That's called compassion satisfaction, where you actually feel like you did make a difference. And that's the kind of stuff that will buffer your burning out. Um, when I, I do a lot of deep breathing when I'm at work, um, when I come home, I try to like shower and kind of visually release the energy from the shift. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm always kind of trying different things. So I'll do mindfulness practices. I'll do meditation practices. And I, I definitely don't do this all the time. I'm talking like 15 minutes a day, you know, it's not, um, it's not all the time. I don't have that much time to like do all these practices, but enough. So, um, yeah, mindfulness is really a sweet practice where, um, you can kind of just sink in, be aware of your body, be aware of your emotions, kind of relax your body and lean into the, um, the, 
the moment, whatever it is, you know, wherever you are. So I try to do those kind of moments at home. Um, I love how you mentioned the compassion satisfaction, because in that moment, you have that perspective of there's 10 things that are happening that suck right now my shift, but this patient just told me a great story or his definition of what God is to him, and you forget about everything else. So because you focused on the positive there, you're not getting that negative energy throughout your shift now that you need to practice so deeply into mindfulness techniques where you're just content with that whole shift and you leave off better energetically. Exactly. I mean, you guys probably felt that a lot. I mean, ICU, that is, I've never worked in the ICU. I've been in the ICU before as a hospice nurse and, um, you know, it's a jarring place to work and it is full of, you know, crises and emotional crises and spiritual crises and physical crises. And, um, I cannot even imagine, I mean, there's moments all over the place, aren't there? (laughs) Every single shift is different when you walk and you don't know what to expect. It's yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's where it's cool because like you said, uh, there's a lot of emotions going on on the unit, especially in the ICU, a lot of things going on. I feel like that's when, because nursing is a predominantly female field as for those of you that, 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 that don't know it's majority mm-hmm. chicks that work most of our listeners are females yeah so, so like it's it's interesting to see how the air kind of changes when you have uh some males on the unit yeah because it's like um like there's some kind of a presence that it's, it makes things interesting because there's a lot of emotions going on and women are, are emotional be- more emotional beings uh men are not as emotional so it's almost like we absorb some of that emotion going on in the room. That way, everyone could like function and focus a little bit, a little bit smoother. I feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's me like a like a me thing, but I don't know. I feel like Matt feels the same way. That's a cool perspective. Like it's yeah, like like it, like it feels different. Like everyone almost kind of like relaxes a little bit because at least <laughs> least they know they're gonna get boosting help for today. <laughs> and I feel like sometimes That's true. <laughs> yeah. it's so good to have super strong people on your shift. That's true. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you guys. I I mean. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like men are probably equally emotional, but maybe mm. they just don't show their emotions. You know, I don't know. I don't know. You yeah, guys yeah. are guys. Maybe you're yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. You crying in the shower. Well, huh? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, when the when song hits. <laughs> Journey. <laughs> yeah. Imagine. What is your current obsession? What are you focused oh. on right now? Mm, I'm. Oh, God. Um. I, well, there's a couple things. I'm them all rip. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of weird because I, I have my work life where I actually work at, at a hospice home. And then I have all these other things that I'm doing, which are like, I'm writing and I'm blogging and I'm, um, trying to like get my book out there in the universe. Um, but, but in the, I'm working on my vulnerability because, um, so that's one of my obsessions is, is trying to not be so like afraid of being out there in the universe with a book and, um, and compassion in healthcare is actually a huge obsession of mine because I feel like if we can change culture in our healthcare, we can actually change the experience for nurses, for doctors, for patients, you know, that seems kind of like a big thing. Um, and I just started an improv class lately. I don't know if I'm obsessed with it, but <laughs> improv. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. We, 
I've saw a few improv shows uh, before. They're they're super funny. I think you've you've seen an improv show as well. In Austin, we've seen one. Yeah, in Austin, yeah, in Austin, we've seen a little bit of improv, a little comedy. But there's a a Chicago place I used to go to once. I went there like maybe four or five times, and it was people doing doing improv, and um, it takes some balls to do improv on on a stage. That's for sure. Yeah, because I can't do it. Yeah, I think I chose that maybe kind of working on my vulnerability, you know, because I do 100%. feel like a little timid. So yeah, that that hundred percent teach you like that not to be vulnerable because it's literally a stage and like the lights point at you and everyone's focused on you. So it's like that's like the like scariest position you could be in for some people, and it's definitely gonna help you grow as a person. You know, uh, regarding your You're your leaning book, into your fear, which is amazing. Yeah, regarding your book. Regarding your book, uh, is it's is it going to be about the culture? What is the title of it? When is it coming out? Oh yeah, um, it's called. I have two books. I have some light at the end, and it's a end of life guidebook for patients and their caregivers. And it's it's really just about hospice and what it is, what it isn't, and how what to expect when you're dying, and all the nursey stuff that we have to teach patients and families about education, man, you know, medication management, anxiety management energy, mobility, all the things. Um, and then the end of life and what it looks like and how you can care for someone at the end of life. So I have some light at the end that's been out for a little while. And then I just released, um, the power and pain of nursing. And it's, it's a 30 day guidebook with self-care practices to replenish compassion. Mm -hmm. Nice. Smooth. Yeah. It's really good. It's it's something because in nursing school, I'm really glad you wrote those books because in nursing school, we have like maybe one hour of a whole semester that's devoted to maintaining self-care as nurses in our future. And then maybe another hour that same day about end-of-life care and hospice. We do like Those are two main things we, we know absolutely minimal about leaving nursing school and entering nursing field. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I know. I mean, isn't that sad? It's really sad because both of them are really significant parts of healthcare journeys. And uh, yeah, so I, I just, I think, yeah, I write things that I feel like I need more knowledge in, so. That's awesome. Thank you for spreading your goodness and helping nurses develop self-compassion. Thank you guys for being nurse warriors. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Where can people find you? Uh, com. Okay, awesome. And the books are available on Amazon. Uh, where do you get the books? And all, all other places that sell books. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, Thank you so much, Beth. Thank really you. appreciate your time. Thanks, you guys.